everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the world's greatest boxing podcast, I Like Boxing with Joe and Joel. I'm Joseph Caulfield, joined as always by the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, the boxing scholar himself, Joel Ilier. Joel, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Joe. How are you doing? I'm very good. Good. The sun has come out for your birthday. Yes, that to, for our listeners, today was meant to be, or certainly will still be a party of some sorts, but it was meant to be a birthday barbecue and it's uh, raining heavily outside. Birthday swim, mate. Yeah. <laughs> that puts pay to maybe the barbecue, but I've got a cooker. You've got people. <laughs> got people. Got do. beer and... Yeah. Boxing. <laughs> Boxing indeed, yes. Um, my gosh, we have two of the biggest and best fights of the year to preview so we'll jump straight in Naya Inoue the monster against Stephen Fulton Jr in what is almost certainly going to be one for the purists it's it's going to be tantalizing it's going to be exciting and as we'll come on to when we preview it in a minute I think there may be a bit of an upset here but anyway undefeated champion Stephen Fulton will go head-to-head against Naya Inoue. Stephen Fulton of course is the WBO and WBC uh, super bantamweight champion. He is defending his titles against three division champion Naya Inoue who is now stepping up to super bantamweight. I guess one of the questions we'll have to cover is will his power carry up yet another division? This fight is taking place on uh, Tuesday the 25th of July which also happens to be my birthday so yay for me what a birthday treat that will be and this one is also taking place in tokyo japan joel i'm going to jump straight in what is your prediction for this fight so i'll come straight out with my prediction would be an anue stoppage around the 11th round for me okay i I see this as just as you read it just a fantastic fight yeah i mean you just can't look past the styles in this one anue is is a Sort of brilliantly concussive pressure fighter who mm. does a, a lot of excellent work on the inside. Fulton is more of your sort of classical, you've mentioned it before, Mayweather-esque type boxer without that sort of stuff going on. Um, they should gel really nicely here. Um, and the more I've I've sort of watched Fulton in the lead up to this, the more impressed I get. Yeah. And had these thoughts that, well, Fulton is he's a level and he's he's got the size He's got the style mm. to really cause Inoue problems. Yeah. We can then always go back to just, but Inoue is so good. Yeah. And he's so concussive in his punch power. Mm. And he sets his punches up so well. Yeah. When he gets on the inside, which he will invariably um, against Fulton, that's going to be the the battle here is going to be for territory in the ring. I think it'll be Fulton trying to keep keep things at a distance a little bit. Yeah. And Inoue trying to get in close. And so the feet are going to be really important. I think Inoue just has better feet than Fulton. And I think that when Fulton inevitably does have to gamble, mm. um, which he will, he'll have to gamble and he'll have to try and commit to his punches. I, I just see Inoue catching him when he's he's sort of coming in in, in those situations. I think yeah. Inoue should do a lot of damage with his his vicious uppercuts in this fight. That's that's how I see it, mate. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that Stephen Fulton Jr., what I've watched of him recently uh, in order to preview this, so impressed. Now, I was convinced that Naya Inoue would win this fight when it was announced. I mean, it's Naya Inoue. He's brilliant. Everyone 
thinks he's special, possibly even generational. But when I started watching their most recent fights, I I became more more enamoured with the idea that there might be an upset here, and and, and I'll t- I'll tell you why. So I don't think that the preparation Naya Inoue has had for a fight like this is ideal. In fact, I think it's less than ideal. If you go back to his last two fights, he's obviously fought Nanito Dene, who's, who's a great fighter, um, but was well past his best. Let's be honest, he's an, he's an old fighter. He knocked him out, I think, in two. Wasn't particularly... Uh, stretched in that one and then you go back to his undisputed fight against Paul Butler before he obviously moved up in weight I mean it's probably one of the worst undisputed fights in history in that it was so one-sided and such a mismatch that again Naya Inoue had his way completely in that fight in fact he seemed to be so many levels above Paul Butler that he was basically having to entertain himself in that fight to keep himself motivated. So I look at those two fights and I just think, now you're fighting someone like Stephen Fulton Jr., I just think that's really, it's not ideal preparation for a fight like this. I look at Stephen Fulton Jr. and I go back to his last two fights. Let's start off with um, Brandon uh, Figueroa. That wasn't that wasn't his most recent one. That was the one before. In that fight, he uh, won, I think, by split decision or majority decision. I can't recall which, but he struggled a bit in that fight in the sense that he was taken into you know deep waters and he was made to fight a lot on the inside and at close quarters and Brandon Figueroa is a big puncher and there were times yeah exactly there were times in that fight where I think Fulton was hurt and you know managed to get himself out of trouble look at his most uh, recent performance against uh, Daniel Roman and uh, obviously he was past his best but good fighter nonetheless and what I saw from that was someone who is going to take the same game plan into this fight. He kept it on the outside and he was just terrific. I mean, that's when I saw the sort of level required, I think, to beat Naya Inoue. And I think Stephen Fulton, with his fighting on the outside, just a brilliant defensive fighter, pot shotter, I think he, he he's got what it takes if he's on his A game throughout this fight to cause the upset. Now, I am going well against the grain here, you know, I know that Naya Nui is a massive favourite. More, pretty much everyone in boxing is going for Naya Nui. It really is very much a case of, you know, there'll be a handful of people out there like me who and Duke McKenzie is another one who think that Stephen Ford Jr. can do it. But I think if he implements that game plan of keeping it on the outside and boxing to his ability, I think he's got enough. Bo- I think he's of such a high-level boxer that he could surprise Inoue and take this. So I'm going to go for the upset. I'm just, I've got a feeling about this one. Well, you're going points, are you? Yeah, it will be points. There's yeah. no way he's stopping Inoue. He just so doesn't think, have the power. I think just to counter a little bit of what you said there, I'll, I'll just say that Inoue, I, I can't see him keeping Inoue off for the 12 rounds. Inoue is so fast and he's mm. so good at uh, sort of picking his moments to attack and then not letting his opponent off the hook. I don't see... I think that your reading of the fight is spot on. I think for long stretches of the fight, it might be the, um, that Fulton can control the ring yeah. and can can keep um, Inoue on, on the end of a jab and, you know, his, his, his long game. 
I just cannot, with a fight of the calibre of Inoue, I can't see that carrying on for 12 rounds. Yeah. I think that he's just dangerous from beginning to end. He gets knockouts early or late. Yeah. And I just think that he's too young still. He's been around for years, but he's still, you know, Inoue's still uh Well, I think Inoue's 30, but Fulton's the younger of the two, Joel, 28 years old, I think. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I'm not sure that the age is going to play a massive part. They're both in no, their prime anyway. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's my point, is that I don't think it will. He, he's not old. Yeah, yeah, he's gonna of course. Be. He of hasn't course. had a tough career. Um, he's only had, you're probably talking really, one tough fight in his career against Nonito Donaire. And it's not that he's not had a high level of opposition. It's that no one else could push him in the slightest. Mm. Um, whereas Fulton, he's only stepped his opposition up in the last couple of fights. Mm. And yeah, he's, he's won, but he did, as you say, struggled against Figueroa. And he um, wasn't pushed against Roman, although that was a really excellent, excellent performance. Yeah. controlled it. So, yeah, I, uh, I just think this is a brilliant fight, mate. Oh, it's a brilliant fight. We've got to give them both credit. I think we have to give Stephen Fulton a lot of credit as well. I mean, he's travelling to J- Japan as the champion. He's willing to take on what who many consider to be the, you know, number one pound-for-pound boxer in the world in Naya Nui. Mm. It is just an absolutely brilliant fight. I think I'm actually looking forward to this one a little bit more than Spence and Crawford in a weird way. I don't know. I mean, I'm looking forward to Spence and Crawford very much so. Yeah. But I think this could be possibly the the, the better fight of the two. I think so. I think this is a better fight, but obviously Spence and Crawford a much bigger event to get stuck into. Yeah. So you're going with a new A stoppage. I'm going with Fulton on points. Very close fight by upset. Let's see how this one pans out right let's move on to the next fight which is errol spence jr against terence crawford for the undisputed welterweight championship and this is the fight i guess the one that many of us in boxing have been calling out for years they're finally gonna put their records on the line somebody's o has got to go somebody's o has got to go in both of these fights mate it's it's brilliant also unprecedented this one isn't it joe it's not unprecedented fight in what sense, Joel? I don't know, it's just that that's what it says on the promotional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this was your point that they called it unprecedented. I was, I was furious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the stuff come out, all the promotional stuff said this unprecedented fight. Well, well, what on earth is unprecedented about this one? Yeah. Brilliant fight. Yeah. Leave it at that. Okay, yeah, no, that's, I, I'll tell you your point. Yeah. Right, I'll jump straight in there again. Joel, who are you going for? I'm going Terence Crawford on points. Oh, interesting. What yeah. makes you think it's going to go points? Well, I just think Crawford's a big welterweight and he's good and he'll probably be able to stand up to the power mm. uh, if I fit, but I think Crawford should should edge it on points by outclassing him at vital moments in the fight. Yeah. And I think he'll hurt Spence Yeah, um, at least once. Yeah. Um, I think it's a it's a really great fight, this. Um, yeah. It's going to crown, I think this is the first welterweight champion, undisputed welterweight champion, um, since Abjudah back in 2006 so historically it's a really significant fight it'll also probably crown a pound for pound champion yes definitely consensus yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah both undefeated um, probably should have happened a while ago this should probably be their third fight isn't it yeah I think, I mean, this has been viable since sort of 27, 2018. It's an interesting fight in the, in when you, now you've mentioned that point in the sense that arguably they're both slightly past their best. I mean, yeah. Terence Crawford's 35. I think Errol Spence is 32. They've both 
been in you know some some you know heavy scraps and also you look at Errol Spence and his car, car crashes is yeah. all his certainly and one car crash and he's only had seven fights in the last seven years so yeah. it's terrible inactivity for oh. someone of his level yeah you yeah know, he should be out three times a year as a star of the sport yeah which is why he's probably never quite caught on as a, a mainstream figure I mean you wouldn't have heard of Errol Spence outside of boxing circles yeah exactly I've certainly never heard anyone mention him out sort of mm. outside of my hardcore boxing circles yeah um but fantastic fight mm. i think again this is another sort of territory sort of fight i mean spence will be looking to sort of lead off in this one i think he'll be looking to land first yeah essentially um and will be reaching in and um, a lot of body work i've always thought actually the key to really get into crawford is is to work his body especially at this age yeah and I think Spence will be looking to do that from distance and, and Crawford will just be looking to pick him off, counter-punch the whole time. Mm. That's his game. Yeah. He just sort of surgically finds openings. Yeah. And then when he gets them, he just thrusts that scalpel straight in there. Yeah. He's, he's absolutely vicious, Terence Crawford, the most vicious man in sport. But something actually that um, hit me when watching a little bit of the build-up for this, they've got a sort of 24-7 type program on youtube yeah for this one uh he seems a little bit more pleasant than he used to be crawford oh really yeah you, you think that might be a bit a sign of weakness yeah, yeah. maybe uh, like, i like him i like him when he's like a real horrible bastard <laughs> <laughs> he seems to fight best like what, that he's... he seemed quite soft yeah yeah oh who uh, knows who knows he's lost that edge yeah uh, maybe not how, how are you seeing it anyway yeah i think I, i'm I'm going to go for Crawford by stoppage. I actually don't, I don't see this one going um, to points. And I think this one might end very early. Uh, the reason I think that is because like you say, Errol Spence is going to put the pressure on and he's going to be up uh, in cl- close quarters. If you just look at how Errol Spence fights, that's the way he fights. He's a high volume puncher and he carries it through 12 rounds. So I think Terence Crawford is someone who is very methodical, a bit more of a slow starter. I don't think he's going to have the luxury of starting slow in this one because of how Errol Spence is going to fight him. And because of that, I think he's going to be forced into possibly a bit of a war early on. I think it would be unwise of him to sort of try and box on the back foot early on uh, because I think it will just waste too much energy. I think Errol Spence is going to pressure him that much. He would just you know, burn out too much energy trying to keep away from him and trying to figure him out. But what I do think is that Errol Spence makes too, not too many mistakes. He's a great fighter, look, but he does make mistakes when he comes in. He has his hands low sometimes and he often is off balance. And because of that, because of how good Crawford is at just being able to pick you off when he sees that opening, I just can see him getting it early and just taking him out. I really do. But I I think this one could be like, you know, at one of the greatest fights. See, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes him out. I would be surprised if it was early, just because of what, what you said earlier, that Terence Crawford doesn't start fast, but you think he's just going to be so on it in this fight, he'll be forced to to come out and be on it from early. I just, I don't think he's going to have the luxury of being able to, Errol Spence is too good a fighter, I think, for you to give him three or four rounds of just letting him body punch you and, you know, he's that sort of pressure will well, still I think hurt. there's something, there's, there's a sort of middle ground though, isn't there? He doesn't have to let him work, but he can be cautious in those first few rounds yeah. whilst trying to nick one or two of them, which is how yeah. I see it. I see it as quite a slow start. Yeah. This fight that will sort of really get going by the middle rounds. Yeah. 
in which case we may see a sort of late round stoppage, but what I think I see it going sort of longer than you do. Yeah. Um, I don't see much action in the first four or five rounds at all. I think this is one that's going to have to have a bit of a slow build. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I watched the Spence-Ugas fight and the Spence-Danny Garcia fights, which were his most two, two most recent fights, you know, he won the Danny Garcia one fairly comfortably. That, that's mainly because Danny Garcia just couldn't match his, his output. But was he that, was, was... Was that his first fight after the... I think it was, yeah, 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 yeah. But but he was caught clean a few times, yeah. more than a few times in in that fight. And then if you look at the, you know, the Ugas one, I mean, he gave Ugas a bit of a beating, but he was caught and he was hurt in that fight as well. He got caught quite badly at one point, seemed to be somewhat disorientated and then fell back to the ropes. I I mean, gosh, if that's Terence Crawford, then I'm sorry. You just, you're not going to get the opportunity to recover. Yeah. Um, no, he does not let you off the hook. And the thing about Terence Crawford as well is that, you know, you, you know, he's, you know, he's a killer. You look, look, look at the Sean Porter fight in that fight. I didn't think it was a great performance, but going into, I think it was the 10th round and it was close. He starts talking to someone while he's sat on his ring store and he's just basically asking what the score is. And he's told that they think Porter might be ahead and he's chatting to this person, don't know who it is. And he looks really surprised and really sort of like, really, is he really ahead? And then he kind of just gets up and then literally within a minute, he's just finished Sean Porter oh, off. Yeah. That's yeah. just how much of a killer this guy is. Um, I, I, I just, I can see him doing it, but I think weirdly because of how Errol Spence starts, he may get the openings very early, very early yeah. on. And I think he'll just, go for it and just take him out. But yeah, no, I mean, we both got the pick right. I think I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if Spence wins, but I'm pretty confident on this one. More confident, much more confident than I am on a new A Fulton. You know, I, I, you know, I, I I really do think Crawford's got this one. Yeah. But I was saying here, I've, um, I've seen Crawford as a really big favorite in this from, from day dot. Yeah. Right, let's go on to the news section. And there's not really much to tell you about, and it doesn't really matter because we've got big things coming up. But Lawrence Acoli has activated his rematch clause against Chris Willem Smith. Can't wait for this fight. What a what a barn burner it was the first time. <laughs> Sky have been landed with a couple of rubbish rematches, haven't they? In fact, it's oh, the yes, other one yes, might be... coming up to another one in a minute. One. Well, yeah, and of course, Liam Smith will face Chris Eubank Jr. on the 2nd of September in their rematch. So my point is going to be the Boxer and Sky have been landed for a couple of rematch clauses with two rematches that absolutely nobody wants to see. Yeah. Now, you've got a real problem with rematch clauses in general, haven't you? And I guess it's because of stuff like this. Yeah, um, absolutely. All of a sudden, we've got two just decisive win. Well, one decisive win, which no one can really see uh, changing. Can't yeah. see a turnaround in the Eubank-Smith uh, fight. Smith was dominant. He yeah. Knocked him out in the third round. Yeah. Easy peasy. Yeah. I don't see much different happening there. Yeah. Uh, the second fight, actually, is reasonably intriguing with Buatzi, uh sorry, not Buatzi, with Lonzo Coley against uh, Chris Billum-Smith. But the problem with it is that it was such an ugly fight first time around. Uh, who wants to see it? The other thing is, is that Billum-Smith is far more popular than a Coley. Yeah. He's a crowd pleaser. Yeah. And nobody can accuse a Coley of that. Yeah. So no one wants to see a Coley win. Yeah. 
he'll probably go into this one as favourite. Yeah. Because as he showed in the first fight, he's actually leagues above Billum Smith. Yeah. It's just Billum Smith has all the other stuff that we talk about. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, sort of unwanted, needless rematches that could actually have quite negative consequences yeah. for us as boxing fans and, and for box art and Sky as a yeah. promotional outfit. So quite interesting. Yeah, no, it is interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. They're both fights so that no one wants to, to see. But they're happening because of the rematch clause. Hey. We're going to put, oh, the um, uh, Smith Eubank Jr. One is a Sky box office, mate. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> no, I, mean, I won't be buying that. <laughs> The first fight was a box office, was it? And they go, oh, right, we've got a rematch for a first fight that no one wants to watch. Let's stick that. £21.95. Yeah, gosh, it's uh, shocking. Um, here's another uh, news story, although I'm not sure that uh, this is official yet or whether you, know, you can indulge us on this one, Joel, but uh, Joshua Boazzi against Dan Aziz has, has seemingly, the contract for that fight has seemingly been signed by both fighters, but I don't think we have a date and we don't have a venue. So maybe it hasn't been... Yeah, it's official. They're fighting. They've signed the contract, the pre-agreement sort of contract to fight. They are fighting, but we haven't got a, a date in a venue. Yeah, yeah. That's a brilliant fight. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic fight. You've got to probably favour Boazzi on this, but Aziz is like Billum Smith. He's one of those fighters who's got the stuff in abundance. And he's, such he's a actually a good he's boxer awesome. as well, but he, you know, he's he's just, he, yeah, you know, he's, he, he's a good fighter. He's a good boxer and he's a TV fighter. He's a good old-fashioned TV fighter. Yeah. He's, he's just fantastic to watch. He's exactly what Boazzi needs to bring the best out of him. I, yeah. think, I think this is going to be an, a cracker. Yeah. Right, let's move on to the Kinahan of the week. And uh, I'm going to go with influencer boxing on this one, Joel, because as far as I'm concerned, it's become a bit of a race to the bottom. We had Daniela Helmsley, or Hemsley, whatever her name is, I've never heard of her, um, flashing her tits live on TV at a kingpin boxing card in Dublin. Glossy. And she has now been uh, removed from the final. I think there was some sort of tournament setting for that one because of the outrage caused by her actions. And then one which was, I think, you know, even worse in terms of just, you know, bottom of the barrel behavior he had a youtuber by the name of alex stein again never heard of him don't know who he is couldn't care less he had his fight cancelled against uh, a muslim by the name of mo dean again don't know what he's uh, an influence for for throwing hot dogs uh, at mo during one of the press conferences and obviously muslims uh, don't eat pork so it was just really Poor, poor, just pointless, stupid. I mean, why would you do something like that? Anyway, as a result of that, misfits have now cancelled that fight. Um, but I think my point here is that influencer boxing has um, seems to be sort of becoming far more prevalent than it should be. And the behaviour of the participants is just shocking. I mean... I said to you earlier, the difference between these guys and, you know, real boxers, and don't get me wrong, I mean, you know, professional boxers can, you know, show shockingly awful behaviour as well. We've seen it before. But the difference is that, you know, you've got boxers who are generally famous for their boxing skill, whereas here you've got 
people who are famous by virtue of their desire just to be famous and they'll do anything to get publicity. Also, I think you've got to remember who the target audience is mm. as well. We're talking about this is stuff that's aimed at kids yep. and teenagers and they are constantly, um, well, it's, it's this offshoot of this influencer boxing. It's now just basically porn stars yep. that are doing it yep. and that are then doing porn starry type things yep. um, to promote the shows and themselves, which, well, we wouldn't expect them to do anything else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a mess. And I've, I'm sort of disappointed that people like the Sourlands, who are a boxing family, yeah. know, they've, come, they've been involved in the sport for years. They clearly do love the sport. And they are happy to promote this stuff and to make an absolute mockery of the sport. We saw a few weeks ago there was that card that had those two morbidly obese men Oh, yeah, men I saw that. Shocking. I mean, that's just circus it is. stuff. It's embarrassing. It was horrible. And, and and in that same show, you then had that, that Joe Fournier who's sort of doing all this stuff with strippers and all of this, and he's like an old man. I've got to think as well with the, you know, those two obese boxers, you know, I mean, that's, I think that's also endangering their yeah. mental health. I mean, uh, they're not going to come out of that, you know, people congratulating them. And they're going to have a lot of, they're going to have the piss taken out of them. They'll be ridiculed. I just think this is, like I say, it's a race to the bottom. It's well, like but, what? Above that, Joe, as well, it's not just the mental health and it's not how it comes across like that to the public. And as you say, it is undoubtedly a race to the bottom. It's horrible stuff, lowest con common denominator type stuff. But one of them could have just had a heart attack in the middle of that. Yeah. I mean, that was quite, it would have been quite likely. So I wonder what sort of medical have you got to pass to get on one of these shows? Yeah. Because those two would not have passed the British Boxing Board of Control Medical. Of course, medical. yeah, yeah. No way. It's shocking. So, Influencer Boxing, you are this week's Kinahan of the Week, that which brings shame on boxing. Right, Joel, you are doing our magazine lottery segment, and I think last week you picked out a magazine that had... I pulled out, uh, it was Boxing News from 24th of July 2009. Oh, yeah. And although the main front cover was Amir Khan... yes. We decided, or I decided to go for um, the other sort of tagline on on the front page, which was Cotto against Pac-Man. It's on. And so this was an announcement that their fight was signed, um, which ended up going ahead later on that year. I think it was the November of okay. 2009 that yeah. they, they ended up actually fighting. And so I thought we'd use this to... Um, to kick off where we left off from a couple of weeks ago where I did a feature on Miguel Cotto's rise to prominence yep. and to fame and popularity yep. in the welterweight division, which took us through to his fight at the Madison Square Garden against Zab Judah. Yes. And so we're going to pick it up after the Judah fight and his first fight, uh, and we're going to end it before the Pacquiao fight, this feature. So we're going to take us through to where we are here, yep. which is waiting for Cotto to face Pacquiao. Now, 
in the intervening period, Cotto's career changes quite quite drastically from where he's been, and that's why yes. it's a really interesting period in Miguel Cotto's career. So, absolutely at the height of his popularity on 10th of November 2007, yeah. uh, Miguel Cotto fought Sugar Shane Mosley, the legend of the sport, at Madison Square Garden. Uh, we'd spoken in the last feature we did about how Cotto had struggled to get the popularity of his countrymen, people like Felix Trinidad, who had sort of effortlessly uh, got over with the fans and his countrymen. And for Cotto, it was a little bit harder and it took a little bit more time. Yeah. But by the time we got to this night in November 2007, Miguel Cotto was an absolute superstar in, in the sport. Yeah. Um, he went up uh, against Mosley. Um, and this was Mosley... Um, before the Margarito win, which relaunched his career. Yep. So Mosley had come onto the scene in the 90s, in the mid to late 90s, and he was a huge star of the sport and he had this famous rivalry with Oscar De La Hoya. He did indeed. And had other major fights as well. But he he sort of came off the rails slightly. Um, he'd lost twice to his old amateur rival, Vernon Forrest, and then he'd lost before this to Winky Wright, upper um, light middleweight. So he yep. moved back down to welterweight for this one. Yeah. Um, so this was when he was in a sort of rebuilding process of his career. This was huge. Yeah. Um, so it was a big fight at the time and everyone expected a bit of a war in this one. And it's what we got. Both of them went straight down into it in the fight. Um, by the end of the second, both are just winging in punches or quite wildly. Yeah. Um, Mosley was famous for his sort of straight right hand. Uh, he had a, a beautiful sort of straight right. Yeah. And he was landing it at will throughout. And Cotto, obviously, his famous left hook uh, was just bouncing off of Mosley's face all night long. Yeah. I'm not going to go into a round by round of this one because um, they all really sort of looked the same, which was both of them just standing in the centre ring, yeah. planting their feet <laughs> and going to war. Yeah. And neither of them wanted to take a step back. Neither of them um, wanted to lose in the eyes of the crowd yeah. it was a remarkable fight i thought that that zab judah fight was a good one yeah this is a next level yeah fight for your boxing purist who likes action as well as just seeing how two boxers should do the should fight yeah uh, the fundamentals are perfect by both of them and uh, probably the difference in the fight was just caught his stronger jab he yeah. had this ramrod jab at this stage of the fight and it, it took over in sort of some of the quieter rounds of the fight there was there was a an interesting one i thought which was between the fifth and sixth round actually where jack mosley who was uh shane mosley's father and trainer yeah had a difficult relationship but he got his son in the ring and there was this moment where they finished the fifth and they both just planted their feet and were swinging punches and then in between rounds jack mosley's advice was to swing the punches in harder just swing them harder. <laughs> and that, that's what the fight had descended into and had become. It was brilliant. Going into the 11th round, Harold Lederman had it 95-95. That's yeah. how close it was. Uh, then he had he had uh, Cotto sort of taking over and winning those last couple of rounds to take the fight. Yeah. I had it uh, by two points to, to Cotto. Yeah. It got announced as a, as a uh, unanimous decision. Two two cards of 115-113 and one card of 116-113. Yeah. And then get this joke, CompuBox at the end of the fight. Now, as you know, I don't um, ho- pay much sort of credence to uh, CompuBox statistics. I don't really see how you can really judge statistics in a fight. And I don't understand how you can 
measure whether a punch has landed and what's yeah. a landed punch, what's a grazing punch, all of this sort of thing. Yeah. But this is how close this fight was, how even it was. CompuBox <laughs> had them both landing exactly 248 punches each oh, wow. in the fight. I have never seen that before. Gosh, they both took a bit of punishment in that one then. They both seriously went for wow. it there. Um, but this left Cotto again as kind of like the star of the sport. Yeah. One of the absolute stars of the sport. And then his next fight after this would be the Antonio Margarito fight. Now, this this changed everything. This fight goes down in the uh, infamy. history. Yeah, infamy, the Annas Orablas of, of the sport. Yeah. And to give you a little bit of... Um, an idea of, of where these guys were coming into the fight. Floyd Mayweather had just retired after beating Ricky Hatton. Yeah. So this showed what this fight was. All of a sudden, at welterweight, the king was up for grabs. Yeah. The king of the sport had retired. Yeah. You had Manny Pacquiao was in the beginning of that tear where he yeah. just tore through everyone here. But Cotto was pretty seen as the be- much seen as the best outside of Floyd Mayweather at the weight at yeah. this point. He, he was the man. Um, Margarito had come in to this one. He'd, he'd beaten Kermit Cintron twice. Now, Cintron, these were massive wins at the time. Cintron was seen as he was this cronk fighter fighting. He was he was uh, one of Manny Stewart's sort of disciples yeah. uh, from, in, from that Philly gym. And he was meant to sort of be the next big guy in the sport. And yeah. uh, Margarito ruined this. He'd knocked him out in, I think, about five rounds and then repeated the trick about a year later yeah. uh, when people sort of sort of expected um, Cintron to maybe get it back, and he didn't. Um, but Margarito had lost a few in his career so far. He'd lost that fight to um, to uh, Santos. Yeah. Uh, he'd lost to Paul Williams more recently, and then he'd had some sort of early career losses that we yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah. That, that, they didn't figure. Um, but yeah, so he was sort of on a bit of a rebuilding job because of that Paul Williams loss. And so he came in. He was this giant guy at Welter Margarito, and he just had an uncompromising and unstoppable style. Yeah, he was just a front foot fighter, classic yeah. Mexican fighter. And he was his thing was he was massive at the weight. Yeah, and he hit ridiculously hard. Yeah, yeah. And so it came into this fight anyway. Um, Cotto, this is expected to be like a Hagler Hearns type shootout. Yeah. Cotto comes in, mate. The first five, six rounds of this fight, I'm not sure you can fight much better than Miguel Cotto was fighting. Yeah. Um, he went in there and he boxed the bloody ears off of Margarito, but Margarito didn't stop trying at any point. And yeah. he kept, he had such confidence that he was going to get to Cotto. And from about the third round, you're watching this thinking, he's going to get to Cotto. Yeah. Although Cotto was boxing beautifully and he's catching, you know that footwork, he pivots off a of sort of both feet, Cotto, doesn't he? Yeah. He could sort of do this thing, he could sort of glide around the ring backwards while yeah. landing these vicious punches. And he was doing it consistently. But you just got the feeling that Margarito was catching up on, on him yeah. and he was managing to impose his, his style on Cotto and in the seventh round I remember this watching it at the time but Cotto had managed to get out of the way of virtually all of Margarito's punches and then in the seventh Margarito backed Cotto up against the ropes and he clearly caught Cotto with sort of two left uppercuts and then a left hook Yeah, and Cotto just pulled out of that exchange and his face was just busted up. Yeah. That one exchange had busted up his left eye, his right eye, bruised his forehead. Yeah. He's thought, whoa. He's yeah. just taken, he, this guy just punches so hard. Yeah. 
so anyway, that that's how the rest of the fight went. Um, that from that moment, the fight turned. Margarito caught up with him. Ninth, tenth, eleventh round. Margarito was just applying constant and unyielding pressure yeah. on Miguel Cotto, and you just saw Cotto just fading. And Miguel, I didn't stop winning rounds during this period because he was still fighting at a hundred percent. He yeah. weren't giving up. Yeah, and it was an odd one because then in the eleventh round. But I just took a knee. Yeah. He came out of virtually nowhere and he just took a knee. He just yeah. had enough. Yeah. And he got up after about three, on the count of three, by Kenny Bayless. And then Margarito sort of marches towards him and Cotto backed off into a corner and he just took another knee without taking another punch. Yeah, wow. And normally you question someone's character in a situation like this and there's a couple of reasons that we can't in this because... I believe, watching this fight, that Cotto was actually at this moment, rounds and rounds earlier, where his body was probably screaming out for him to just take a knee, mm. take a knee, you can't survive this. Mm. And he refused to do it. And not only did he refuse to do it, he kept on trying to win until the absolute last second. And yeah. then a moment hit him in that 11th round. Yeah. And he just didn't have it, even if he landed his perfect best punch he could possibly land in this yeah. fight. He wasn't going to knock Margarito out. Yeah. And he was done. Yeah. And he's he's taken the knee, has beaten out of him, and then his his cornerman evangelist to Cotto um threw in the towel. Yeah. And it was sad. It was awful. Um Cotto had to go away after this one. And he had a really difficult few months reassessing the fight. Um but there but was there's more happened. to this fight that meets the eye, there, Joel. Yeah, isn't there, so something happened. Cotto was training for uh, his fight against Michael Jennings, which would take place on 21st February 2009. But a month before that fight was due to take place, yes, Antonio Margarito is signed to fight Sugar Shane Mosley. He is indeed, and I think it was at the Baldwalk Hall in Atlantic City. I seem to remember um, they're due to fight and. In the dressing room before the fight, you yeah. can send your chief second to, or a representative to go and watch the hands being wrapped. Yeah. And Shug Shane Mosley's trainer, Brother Nazim, yeah. went in to watch, watch the hand get wrapped and he, he said, no, there's something wrong there. Yeah. Makes the commission undo the wraps on Margarito's gloves. Now, straight away, Capitello and Margarito, Capitello was Margarito's trainer. Yeah. And Margarito were looking uncomfortable with it and were kind of trying to get out of having to show what was in the wraps. Yeah. Um, they insisted, they look in, and he had two illegal wraps in his hand wraps. Yeah. Now, these were bits of cloth that were essentially designed to harden as they get wet. Yeah. So as your sweat, yeah. As the fight goes on, yeah. hits these wraps. Yeah. The wraps harden and mm. they're illegal to use in boxing, obviously. He he was wrapping it, he was he was wrapping, he was putting stuff in his gloves yeah. um, to increase the power on his punches. And when you go back and watch that Cotto fight yeah. with this knowledge that yeah. he got caught with this in his very next fight, no one has any doubt that Antonio Margarito was cheating in that first Cotto fight. We also have to say that there's a very strong chance, if not more than likely, that he was cheating even before then. If yeah. you think about his victories against Kermit Cintron, he also beat a uh, you know an excellent, outstanding fighter in um, Sergio Martinez. Yeah. You know, and when you look at Margarito fight, really, when you look at him fight, there's nothing that special about him. You know, he's a come-forward fighter. He can be a bit slow and plodding. But as you say, what he had was the size and this just unerring ability to just, like, 
almost a foreman like punch mm. you know it just has that effect exactly on you that. but no, we, it's exactly that is it's that foreman joe joyce type thing yeah that juggernaut stuff yeah where you just wing in these hard wide punches and get your body weight behind them yeah but as you say we now know that margarito was in was was cheating and in all certainty cheating probably for the majority of his career absolutely and i think watching that qualify as well there's the belief that it'll give you that you're going to catch up with your opponent Mm. If you know you've got these these wraps that are going to essentially activate as the fight goes on, yeah, you you mentally can just take more yeah. early on in the fight. So when he was getting absolutely poleaxed essentially yeah. by Cotto early on in that fight, yeah, he was just acting like nothing was happening. Yeah, it was just like he was just walking through a brick wall. Yeah, you know, it was one affecting him. So it's because I he had a brick that, hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So that put a whole different complexion on things. And in the eyes of fans, you reassess that. But Cotto, once he found us out, was just full of bitterness. Yeah. It did turn him into a bitter man yeah. after this. He was furious with what had happened um, with Margarito. And, you can't blame and him, Fair though. enough. Um, well, bef- before that, of course, because before the Margarito fight, it, it sort of done, it burst that awe of invincibility around Cotto because... People may have thought that Cotto could get beat, but nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that Miguel Cotto could be beat up. Uh, well, no one thought at the time that he would quit. No. And that was the perception. Oh, yeah. he he's maybe not got the stuff that we thought he did, but obviously in, in hindsight, it might have been the best thing he did. I mean, really, he could have been killed. Oh, 100%. 100%. Murdered. 100%. So, anyway, Cotto, 21st February 2009, has his comeback fight against the really talented uh, Mancunian Michael Jennings. Now, Jennings was a fighter that I used to really like um, mm. around this time, sort of between about 2006 and 2010. Uh, Jennings was a real feature on the British domestic scene. Yeah. Uh, he'd had really good wins. He'd had a couple of losses as well. He, he lost to young Muttley. In fact, I think that was his, his only defeat. Uh, prior to this fight. Yeah. Um, but he'd had good wins against, uh, oh God, Ross Minter and one or two others yeah. coming into this one. He, w- he was given a bit of a chance by um, some English uh, fools like myself. <laughs> um, and, and then it came came to the fight. He, he was um, knocked out essentially in the fifth round. Yeah. And that, that was caught. I was just on uh, physically just completely outmatched. Uh, poor Michael Jennings that night. Jennings was a sort of skinny, sort of tall fighter, mm. and Cotto just ate him up to the body mm. all, all night long. He, he was overmatched, Jennings, on this night, mm. uh, but he gave it his best. And then uh, the last fight that we'll talk about on this little run was uh, Cotto against Joshua Clotty. Now, this one took place at, at Madison Square Garden. It's on the 13th of June, 2009. Now, Joshua Clotty uh, was a fixture of the welterweight division at the time. He had lost a very close fight to Antonio Margarito. Yeah. Uh, but he'd had some good wins in the build-up. And this was a really tough fight. Um, Clotty, really tough Ghanaian fighter. He, he had long arms. He would cover up well. And these two basically went to war for 12 rounds. Uh, it was very committed uh, it, was, it was a narrow win for Cotto in the end. Not particularly interesting fight. A lot of the rounds looked similar. Yeah. Um, and, and Clotty, really, he he was one of these fighters that stopped you doing what you were good at doing. Yeah. He was one of them t- 
types, yeah. uh, whilst also marching forward and, and landing his own stuff. And that, that's how this fight went. Uh, but what Cotto showed in this one, that his fight and his heart and his desire was not gone because he had to work really hard to win this fight. And he did it and he put himself back in the window. Yeah. And this then launched him again. He was now ready for the Manny Pacquiao fight. And my gosh, in life, you've got to be careful. <laughs> For what you wish for. What you wish for. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that for the moment and we'll come in and we'll do a proper feature on this one on some other day because it was possibly the greatest fighter in history on his greatest night and that is when the story changes from Miguel Cotto's career into Manny Pacquiao's finest moment. Yeah. I think what's interesting as well about this the segment you've just done here is that when we did the one on Miguel Cotto a few weeks back, we were sort of looking at the rise, the early rise of Miguel Cotto. And I guess when, when now we've covered this part, we're looking at sort of, not the full per se, because he's, you know, he had a brilliant career, but what we're looking at is... I guess when his prime years got beaten out of him, really it was the Margarito fight was the start of that. And then of course, he obviously bounced back, but we're going to talk about the Pacquiao fight at one point. And that really was when his prime got completely beaten out of him by an all time great at the absolute peak of his powers. What we've just covered as the start of the sport doing what it does to everyone. Yep. Where it eats you up. Yep. And this is like, this is the, we'll just hit the appetizer. Yeah. And and now he's he's about to hit the, the main course. Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. Unfortunately. I like that one, Joel. Well done. <laughs> Great. I enjoyed that one. Get me the stash of magazines, please. There you go. I've got this, this big stash along. Right. I have pulled out an edition of. Boxing News, dated April the 3rd, 2014, and on the front cover is a certain Carl Frampton, and it goes, great, big fight preview. Barry McGriggan's protege, oh, <laughs> we won't touch on that one yet. It says, Barry McGriggan's protege aims to nail a WBC title shot, Belfast buzzing ahead of Carl Frampton's crucial clash. Actually, it's really interesting I brought that one up and it mentions him as Barry McGriggan's protege and it has a, in the background, picture of a picture of Barry McGuigan. But as we all know, things turned sour between those two and they ended up in court. That might be an interesting one to cover because we've spoken about that at length, um, their fallout, and of course how you know a certain Daniel Kinahan played a part in that. Anyway, yeah, that could be the one, Joel. Yeah, but anyway, I'll have a look me. and I'll see what else is in there. Right, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we shall be back next week. Joel, any final words? Love you all. And on that note, goodbye. <laughs>